Hello, and welcome back to Nature's Wonders. Today, we are joined with Daryl to talk about all things houseplant related. This podcast is sponsored by Corals Anonymous, Aquachar, and Willow's Reef. Sit back and enjoy the show. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm good, Will. How are you? I'm doing good. So, how did you get into plants and the whole plant hobby? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I guess by now it's probably like six or seven years ago while I was still living uh, at home with my parents. My mom said, hey, help me decorate the house with some houseplants. But she also said to me, but, you know, you need to figure out how to take care of them. And I'm sure you've heard the sort of familiar, you know, she claimed she was a black thumb, not very good with plants. And, you know, this kind of confused me because she taught me how to do vegetable gardening and we had an outdoor garden. So I was like, well, how could indoor plants be so different? You know, so then I just, okay, Googled plant care. We bought a couple of plants. And what I found when I, when I read the advice was just a lot of, you know, tips and tricks, do this, don't do that. And, you know, for someone with my background as an engineer, I, I'm used to more technical things. So I'm perfectly fine, you know, reading up on, on more technical type of documents even. Right. Um, and so when I, really started digging around and I was like wow houseplant care is really not they don't they don't tend to write it in a very uh, precise way it's lots of vague um, you know bright indirect light of water once a week and so I decided okay I'll just write it you know journal about it in my own way and literally that is why my brand is called houseplant journal so it all actually started on tumblr first and then it went to instagram then you know I guess you could say because I also love photography. So I, you know, took pretty good pictures of plants, but I also wrote about it in a way that was, I guess, more precise and maybe more hobby oriented, you know, like long-term hobby. Like I treated it like it was, you know, these are some really cool things that you could have living around with you. I didn't just want to talk about them as if they were decor that you had to maintain. So that's sort of how Houseplant Journal began. And, you know, if we just kind of fast forward, uh, eventually it caught the attention of a, a literary agent and then she she and I put together a proposal and then I uh, got a publishing deal to, to write a book and that book is now called The New Plant Parent and yeah it, it's sort of like just my take on houseplant care. So at the beginning you talked about how you used to be before you got into the houseplants you and your mom did a lot of vegetable gardening. Do you find that it's vastly different from houseplants with the care or are there some similarities? Well, I would say that, you know, through speaking with um, other, let's say gardeners who, who do outdoor gardening, um, the thing that I've come to really uh, understand is that for outdoor gardeners, they work very much sort of like with nature, right? Um, there's well-established gardening zones. If you if you live in, um, I don't know, like a zone five, you would never expect a zone 10 desert cactus to live outside uh, in your yard, you know, for very long, except maybe in the summer. So these sorts of, let's call them restrictions are, are well understood and, and uh, people kind of work within those limits. But with houseplants, as I said earlier about the, you know, decor that requires maintenance philosophy, that's sort of how people treated it all the time. So there was never any kind of, uh, let's say, telling you, okay, 
if your windows are X size, maybe you shouldn't get this type of plant. It's almost as if they don't care so much about that and they don't even care so much whether the plant lives with you for, you know, the next year or two years, or even if it dies in a few months, right? Like they don't really talk about that kind of long-term appreciation. And so that's sort of where I see the, the major difference in terms of gardening versus houseplant care, um, which is that we're not really treating indoors as if it were like indoor gardening. And do you feel when you're doing your indoor gardening or not indoor gardening, but your houseplant care, do you feel like you are creating the environment that your plants live in and you're not working with the nature as much? And is that something that draws you into it? Because I know that a lot of people in the aquarium hobby, they like to be in control of their little slice of the ocean. So that's just (laughs) an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, actually, you're right. Um, I've I've recently started to get into, I don't know if you've seen, uh, you know, people buying an Ikea cabinet, like a glass cabinet, and then turning it into like a tiny little greenhouse. So I, I've recently started to get into that. And I really do see the kind of appeal of, you know, really controlling various aspects of your environmental conditions. And, you know, seeing, yeah, like kind of like, yeah, being having being in control and uh, also because I'm an engineer, I love to measure it. So I love to look at my hygrometer, thermometer, and my light meters to sort of really understand what's going on in there. And I mean, that's for the greenhouse part, but for the for the regular plants that are not in such highly controlled environments, it's sort of more of a game of choosing the right plants that will do well in your space. Yeah. And I saw that you posted uh, a picture of your IKEA cabinet. So mm-hmm. what different types of things did you change in the cabinet to make it a greenhouse suitable for plants? Yeah, well, well so the f- first thing I did was I, I wasn't using the, the regular glass shelves that it comes with. And instead, I put this, um, well, it's called grid wall. And basically, it is for normally for retail displays that allows kind of like a modular shelving system in there so i put that into the cabinet and then the other thing i did was which is really critical is to seal up the uh all the cracks in the in the door basically it's the door frame that doesn't you know when it closes there's probably about a quarter inch gap most of the way around it and if you don't seal that then any sort of humidity and temperature control you have inside kind of just goes out the window or out out of those cracks Um, so sealing up the cracks allows the humidity to stay at a nice, uh, you know, 60 to 70%, um, even when ambient outside right now for myself in, in winter, the ambient humidity is like 35%. And so that would be not good for the, those, uh, kind of, uh, more delicate aeroids. So you're shooting for about 60 to 70% humidity when you're taking care of your plants. Yeah, so the ones in the in the greenhouse, the IKEA greenhouse, the temperature is typically around 25, 26 degrees Celsius. Um, sorry, I don't know what that is Fahrenheit. Um, but yeah, then I'm when it, when it's that temperature, I'm aiming for sixty to seventy percent uh, humidity. For the plants that aren't in your greenhouse, how are you getting the same humidity levels, or are you just growing different types of plants? Well, yeah, so that's the point of my outside, like the non-greenhouse plants is that I, my, my, my philosophy is that 
my out my regular ambient humidity is what it is and whoever can take it takes it and whoever starts to shrivel up and not look so good then i just say well then this plant is not suitable for you know canadian winter indoor humidity but basically they are different plants they like i don't keep the same types of plants outside what are your uh, favorite types of plants to keep um outside well one of my absolute favorites is the staghorn fern which is uh botanical name Platycerium bifurcatum and it's it's one of those plants that I don't know if you've ever seen like they, they usually mount it onto a, a wooden plaque or something mm-hmm. and it's this kind of uh, you know it literally looks like like green antlers um, you know as if it were like a, a staghorn that's that you put on a wall so that's one of my real favorites that I've had for I think it's I've had it for about five years now um, Another one is the Monstera deliciosa, which sometimes is called a Swiss cheese plant. Um, yeah, and this one is the one that has like those really nicely patterned leaves. Um, the patterns are called fenestrations because they, they, I guess the word, the root word sounds like windows. So they, they basically let light through. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorites because, well, first it's just huge. It takes up half my room here. Um, and I just really love the way that, you know, the, the leaf, each, each new leaf has an opportunity to be kind of more complex than the previous one. And so each time a new leaf grows, you're kind of like, <laughs> it's like playing a little game of lottery to see like what, what pattern you're going to get from it. Mm-hmm. I've actually been really interested into the staghorn ferns lately. How do you water that on your uh, wall? Uh, well, I don't. I don't actually water it on the wall. I have to take it down and take it over to the shower, and then um, I recently installed like a one of those um, handheld sprayers for my shower, just so that I can more easily spray the plant. Um, and so what I do is I, I take it up when it's time to water. Then I'll I'll take it off the wall, put it into the shower, and then give it a nice hosing down, uh, and then I'll usually leave it there overnight so that it you know doesn't it's not dripping wet anymore. Um, then I take it back to the wall and just hang it up. I, I, I actually do have an Instagram reel showing the process very quickly, but uh, yeah, it's, it's you know funny because it's such a huge plant that I'm walking around the apartment very carefully with it. Yeah, yeah. So I've seen a lot of different opinions on what water to use when you're watering your plants. I've seen some people use just RODI water or the reverse osmosis. And I've seen other people just use normal tap water. Do you find that different water makes different growth yeah so th- this is this is one of the factors in plant care that sort of like um because because it's so varied from place to place uh so so yeah like the factor of of water yeah is just so different from place to place that it's hard to just tell someone oh yeah it's fine to use tap water for x plant right um i mean i think i'm pretty fortunate here in toronto that my, my tap water is clean clean enough to drink so generally i can just use it for all my plants and, and they're most most of them are fine um, and then of course there is the other factor which is individual types of plants have different sensitivities to whatever the like whatever minerals might be in the water right so we're kind of dealing with sort of like shooting a moving target on a moving platform you know we have so many variant variations of water that you could have and also so many different plants that you know 
you could say, oh, just use distilled water or something for everything. But then that's, to me, a little bit of a waste of um, the effort to distill the water, right? I, I prefer to just, again, back to my, my I just understand this is my own individual philosophy, which is I just use whatever is in the tap and whoever can take it, takes it. Whoever doesn't look good after, well, sorry, then they don't get to live with me much longer. Yeah. So water is a big factor in keeping your plant alive, of course. What are, uh, what are the other big factors to ensure success? Yeah. Um, well, I would even call water to be just step two in plant care because step one is actually light. And I always go back to the very basic science of photosynthesis, which is that, you know, your plant needs to make its own carbohydrates using the energy of light and combining water and carbon dioxide to make the, the sugars. So it's not even enough to say that light is like an ingredient to the, to the whole process. Light is what powers the oven that makes it happen. So ensuring that the plant has the right light is, is like prerequisite before you even talk about watering. <clears throat> uh, and in terms of the way that I come to understand light is, well, I like to use a light meter in order to know how exactly how much light a plant is receiving. Um, because, you know, the issue is not as simple as just sun or no sun, because I'm sure you, you've probably come across this term, bright indirect light. Well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, a lot of people just hear those words and the only things that they can kind of latch on to are, okay, indirect means, okay, the sun is not shining on, on the plant. Uh, some people even take it to mean that I should avoid having the sun touch it at all. But uh, when you actually measure light, then you, you'll, you'll find that, okay, these plants, yes, if, if the sun was shining directly on it, for those few moments, it is quite high, but the photosynthesis is going at maximum. It's only if the duration of direct sun exceeds two or three hours that that would be quote unquote too much. Um, but on the flip side, what, what is too little? Well, it's any time the sun is not shining on you. Well then like, or sorry, it's not like directly on in your line of sight, then we're dealing with indirect light, but exactly how much do most of these plants need? Well, they need to be basically right in front of your biggest, biggest window. And only if the sun is shining on it or going to shine on it for longer than two or three hours, should you block it with a white sheer curtain, ideally. Um, see, the mistake that most people make is that they think indirect light and then they think, okay, then I'll move it farther from the window. But when you use a light meter, you'll see that you move even just a foot away from your window and the reading can go down by, by half, right? So like <laughs> short of telling everyone to just buy a light meter, which I mean, I have been doing already, but short of telling them to do that, my guideline is just your plants need to be right in front of your windows. Uh, and the only time it'll be too much, quote unquote, too much light is if the sun, the duration of direct sun is longer than two or three hours. Are you measuring in Kelvin or are you what type of, what's your Oh, sorry, I, I, I didn't what? even, sorry, I, I didn't even mention what unit I'm using. I'm, I'm usually I'm using foot candle, which is like the old horticultural unit. And that's like the, the metric equivalent of that is called Lux, 
And I would say the more scientific, correct unit to use is PPFD. And if someone does not have a lot of windows and they want to use their own artificial light, what tips do you have to make sure that your plants still get the enough light that they need to grow? Mm -hmm. So, well, they would, number one, need to get some grow lights. But then for me, just telling someone to get grow lights uh, without getting a light meter, I call that the equivalent of buying an oven without knowing what temperature you can set it at, right? Uh, because if you use a light meter, you'll see that you put the, you know, your grow light, let's say six inches away, you take your light meter and it reads 1000 foot candles. You then you move it like maybe just another six inches away to like one foot away. And now the reading is down to, I don't know, 600 or 400 or something like that. So such minute changes can cause really big changes in the reading. Then it, it's almost as if I would, I would call it almost irresponsible to use a grow light without actually knowing what the plant is actually getting, you know? Uh, but, but yeah, okay. Let's, let's say, let's pretend we don't like, you know, people just buy the grow light without being a light meter. Then, you know, when you're online shopping for your grow light, make sure you look at, hopefully it's included, which is like the reading of how strong the light is at different distances and then correlate that to, okay. Um, you know, pothos or ZZ plant or whatever, you know, does relatively okay with, let's say, 100 foot candles, then, you know, make sure you put the plant no farther than where the reading is around 100 foot candles. Mm -hmm. And if, a, so if you, you think that if a beginner was to get started in plants, that they should just use their windows? Yeah, I, I think uh, you, you should really start by getting the types of plants and the number of plants according to how much natural light you have, which is really about the size of your windows plus how obstructed they are outside and, and all that stuff. And for a beginner, what types of plants would you, su would you suggest? Well, definitely uh, pothos, um, which is called Epipremnum aureum. Uh, it's sometimes called devil's ivy is a common name. That's a plant that people are always calling very forgiving, right? Where, where, you know, you, even though you're supposed to uh, water it when it gets partially dry, even if the soil reaches total dryness, the plant just kind of, you know, wilts and, and looks a bit floppier. However, it'll do a full recovery once you, once you fully water it again. And so in that sense, it, it's a good kind of like training plant to train you to, you know, keep up with your watering. I guess another one would be actually the Monstera deliciosa. Even though it's a big plant, it's still relatively uh, the same, like similar situation as pothos. And another, some other types of plants are like uh, aglaonemas or sometimes called Chinese evergreen. They are also, you know, very forgiving in terms of its uh, watering requirements. And, and generally, but of course, light, I'm always saying, you know, put it right in front of your window. No matter what, if you put any of these plants far from your window, you're just going to watch them die slowly. Uh huh. Do you think that vining plants like the the pathos? Do you think those are easier than broadleaf, or is it just all depending on species? Sorry, what what do you mean by broadleaf? I guess not vining. Oh, okay. So I think maybe vining maybe just appeals more to the beginner because you can you can physically see it get longer, and then you kind of feel like, hey, this plant's growing, right? Like you know, in terms of like 
you could say the noticeability of the plant growing is, is a lot easier from a vining plant. Um, and, and of course, because pothos, it, when it's in the wild, it's sometimes considered a weed because it's a little bit invasive. Um, when it's indoors, you know, you, I have one hanging in my bedroom and like when, when I bought it, it was maybe hanging about a foot down from the, from the, uh, the basket. And now it's like touching the floor. So, you know, you kind of have a, a, a more noticeable sense of growth with, with a, with a vining plant like pothos or even uh, philodendron is also similar structure. Mm -hmm. So another aspect of plants, it would be the substrate or the soil that they're growing in. What key mm -hmm. things do you look for when you're potting your plants? Yeah, so uh, with soil, I mean, typically, the first thing I would say is it, it is quite different from, from outdoor soil. So don't just take your outdoor, you know, dirt and then start using it for houseplants because the, the substrate that houseplants are typically potted in is, is what's called uh, a soilless mix, uh, which means that it's usually made of peat moss, which is like a brown fibrous kind of stuff, or alternatively, some people are using uh, coconut core, core spelled C-O-I-R. These are, you know, good for water retention. And then in order to kind of help it become a bit more uh, what's called airy or have more porosity, the they'll add sometimes these white pellets called perlite. And so usually if we're just going to talk about very um, simple soil mixtures, you're really just changing the proportion of, of peat moss and perlite. So something that needs higher water retention, like a, like a fern, for example, you could use like even 100% peat moss for it. Uh, whereas something like a snake plant that requires a lot more drainage, you could go right up to a one-to-one -one mixture of peat moss and perlite. And then the, and the mixture itself will then look very, very grainy and, and very coarse. So do you think, are, what are the other factors that will induce growth? Uh, well, I mean, okay, so other than having adequate light, then watering. Actually, we didn't quite talk about the, the watering, which is that um, I think one area of confusion with watering is that people often speak of it as if every different plant had a different schedule. But the truth is because everyone's light levels mainly are, are different, then the water uptake is actually different between just different people, even if they have the identical plant. So the better approach I always say to watering is that you should just be using a, a soil dryness cue. So you're looking at the soil and when it reaches the right level of dryness, then you water it. And when you do it this way, you can just consider all plants as being only one of three different types of, uh, I call it watering strategies. The first is you keep the soil evenly moist. This applies to something like a maidenhair fern. Um, water when partially dry, most tropical foliage are, you know, you water when the soil reaches some level like 50% dry. Uh, and then the last type is water only when the soil is completely dry. And this is like your snake plants, your cacti. These ones, you, you don't need to water them until the soil is totally, totally dry. And actually that simplifies the, the thinking around watering a lot, which is that you don't have to follow any schedule. You just look at it, look at the soil and, and make that determination. So then, okay, we got light, we got watering. The, the next one would be fertilizing. So, you know, plants, they're making their carbohydrates with, uh, you know, um, water and carbon dioxide, but there are other cell structures 
they need to be um, made using other nutrients that are in the soil. In the na- in nature, sometimes you know insects and worms, their their excrement has lots of these nutrients in it, but you know inside our house we don't have the insects in there, so we have to supplement it somehow, and that's usually done with with fertilizer. So um, fertilizer is usually uh, a, a mixture of NP and K, so that's nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and those are in some ratio that you know is, is sort of like optimized for, uh, I guess you could say, different types of growing. So most houseplants, because all you really care about is to have their leaves grow nice and big, um, or what's called vegetative growth, then you mostly want a high nitrogen fertilizer. And the ratio that I like to use is uh, three, one, and two for NP and K, which just means any fertilizer where those three numbers are some multiple of three, one, two, then I'll use that. So the purpose of fertilizing would be to give your plants nutrients, correct? Yes. So having a nutrient-rich substrate, would that substitute fertilizing or do you still need to fertilize? Yeah, so sometimes... uh, People will use like let's say uh, worm castings um, in 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 like a new potting mix, and so and sometimes even when you open up a bag of fertilizer or sorry open up a bag of soil, you look at the back, uh, it will say that okay it feeds for three months or something like that. So basically, yes, new new soil sometimes has nutrients already in there, or for example, like you said, nutrient rich soil it it has. Um, some nutrients in there. And so, yes, sometimes what ends up happening is um, if somebody just repots their plant after a couple months, then, and they, you know, they claim they've never used any fertilizer. Well, then it's because the plant is probably still okay with whatever nutrients are already in there. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to test for a nutrient level or is that just dependent on the growth of your plant? Hmm. I... I have never actually um, thought of doing like soil. So you know how with outdoor gardening, sometimes you can take your a sample, like a sample of your soil, and send it to your your local. I think it's called an extension, and then you know they'll do an analysis on it on it for you uh, to sort of say like, okay, you know your pH is generally this, your salinity is that. Like I've never heard of people doing that for house plants, mostly because you know, each individual container of soil is different from, you know, plant to plant. Yeah, I mean, other than that, I I don't really know of any way that you could test for the nutrient level. I think it's more like you kind of just observe the plant. And so long as it's generally doing fine, then you can assume that your uh, fertilizer regime or or, or soil treatment or whatever is uh, good enough, you know? Yeah. Let's say that you have a plant and it's not doing too well. What are the top tips to make this plant survive? Hmm. Uh, I I think it's going through the the sort of um, you know checklist of good good growing conditions, right? So number one, always I always check is is light, and that's because you know many times, like I I'm sure you can understand, I've seen thousands and thousands of questions, and my first question is usually always uh, show me where you put the plant relative to your windows and such. And because, you know, bright indirect light, as I said, is often misinterpreted, the plant is 10 feet from, 
from a small window and right away I'll just say your, your plant has been starving for however long you've put it here. So number one I always check is is to make sure that it is getting the best possible light um, that the person has. Number two is then I'll ask about um, sort of like what is your thought process around watering and the reason why I ask thought process is I don't want to just find out like how frequently are you watering. I want to know whether you think it's a schedule or whether you think or whether you're actually observing the soil dryness right so you know sometimes if it's like let's say a snake plant that you know you water only when it's completely completely dry but the person is telling me oh i was told this is water every 10 days or something but but then right then and there i can say oh it's it's probably because you're not checking for the soil to be totally dry um, would be the reason why potentially like root rot is happening and the plant is kind of not looking so hot after a few a few weeks or so yeah i mean you know when, when you check just those two things and i'm sure that 80 percent is gonna you know you're gonna catch that um uh problem yeah yeah is repotting would that ever solve like an issue if your water and your light is pretty good oh yes absolutely so the the way that I always kind of like evaluate whether it's time to repot is uh, number one, I ask myself, okay, how long has the plant been in that same pot of soil? And like between, again, all of this varies so much because different plants can tolerate uh, different soil uh, compactness or even, um, you know, what's called root boundness, which is like if the roots have kind of like coiled up and made a solid mass inside the bottom of the pot. Um, so different plants tolerate different amounts. But uh, the other thing that I guess maybe is a bit harder to uh, assess is like you kind of through experience, like you ask yourself, should this plant be doing better? And I'm thinking of a particular example of my Monstera, which is that I, I know that the plant can hold at least eight or nine leaves on a single vine. And yet here it was like already dropping its lowest leaf with only three, three leaves on it. So right away I knew it's like, okay, something's wrong here because this guy normally is growing much more vigorously. And lo and behold, I unpot the plant and it's like got a huge solid mass of roots all coiled up in the bottom. And so it was like basically desperately needing in need of repotting. Mm -hmm. So do you, just look at the plant or is there like a schedule of every few years that you repot i generally just look at the plant and as i said that like i think about how long it's been since i repotted and you know if it's been quite a while then i'll, I'll go t through the more intrusive check which is to take the plant out of the pot and look at the, the root status yeah so when you're getting your plant from your nursery or wherever you're getting it what are the first steps that you take like, do you repot it? Do you trim the roots? Do you, what, what do you do? I, I wouldn't say that there's any kind of like rule that governs what I have to do when I get a plant home. Um, I mean, I think I just look at, I, I'll probably do the, the thing where I look at the root system, like by, by taking it out of the pot and checking it just to see if, you know, there's anything rotting in there or if, uh, you know, if it's already root bound to kind of tell me that, you know, I might need to repot it sooner rather than wait a year or something like that, right? Yeah. Hmm. 
That's interesting. So in your book that you wrote, in the new plant parent, what do you talk about? Do you talk about basic caryide? Do you talk about the more scientific way to take care of your plants? And what is that about? Yeah, yeah. I I think what you could really call the book is like just understanding how to have a you know a nice rewarding hobby with houseplants. And like I, I talk about how regular plant care feels like you're just following a bunch of rules. And then if anything is not perfect anymore, then you kind of blame yourself for it. And I try and, you know, bring this to light and say like, okay, look, you, the plant is going to grow and it's going to change. And, you know, you kind of have to let nature take its course here because literally you're dealing with a living thing. And so it's almost like to sort of like give yourself some slack when it comes to, um, you know, the plant. So you're not just looking at it like a piece of decor, but you're looking at it as what well, I like to call it a botanical friend, right? So that's sort of one aspect of the book. And then the other aspect of the book is being more precise about important things like light. So I talk about measuring light and then at the same time, not seeing other aspects of plant care as being such rigid rigid rules, but rather they're just suggestions. Another thing about the book later, like when you when you get to the the plant profile kind of part of it is that I, I kind of talk about certain plants um, over a period of time. So it's not so much just here's a picture of a monstera and then just talk like list out the care after, as if it was just a recipe, but rather I show you what it looks like after a few months, after a year, some of them I have even over a few years. And the point of all that is to sort of say that, you know, you can have a long-term relationship with, with some plants. And there's even one plant in there I talk about that, it, you know, it, it got pests and then it, it eventually got too, too much to handle and I had to discard it. And just to say that all that is part of the experience and that it's not, you know, somehow your fault or something like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on today. I learned a lot and I'm definitely going to have to check out your book. Um, yeah, so just thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's been been a pleasure. Thank you.